From securing our borders to apprehending dangerous fugitives across state lines, the partnership between federal law enforcement and their state and local counterparts are critical to keeping our nation safe. State and local agencies of all sizes benefit from the training, technical assistance, resources, and manpower that federal agencies can provide. Today, we're joined by Marvin Richardson, who has been the highest ranking official with ATF for the past year. As acting director, he led an agency of over 5,000 employees and oversaw a budget over $1 billion. The ATF is responsible for investigating and prevention of federal offenses involving the unlawful use, manufacturing, and possession of firearms, explosives, acts of arson, and bombing, as well as illegal trafficking of alcohol and tobacco products. Having worked with ATF for over 33 years, Deputy Director Richardson is a strong advocate for our brothers and sisters at the ATF and throughout our federal family. He understands the challenges of our profession and is here today to discuss the work of the ATF and the important ways that the agency supports our local law enforcement. I'm Patrick Hughes, National President of Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. Thank you for joining us on The Blue View. I appreciate you coming and share some uh, information about our partnerships we have with, uh, with ATF and local law enforcement. Before we get started, if you could tell me just a little bit about your, your background. Sure. Well, first, let's start out by calling me Marvin. You got it. <laughs> I haven't quite gotten used to, you know, hey, titles I appreciate. But to be honest with you, when I have a relationship with somebody, let's keep it first name basis. That way, at least people think we're friends. Right. So there you go. Uh, and I like to think that we are friends. Right. So in the law enforcement community, uh, when I talk about friendships and partnerships, you know, they start with things like this. Right. This relationship uh, that we have had with state and local law enforcement for the for the for the duration, really, of our existence uh, as an agency. Uh, we're that agency that, you know, we consider ourselves to be blue collar, right? So uh, I started out as a local police officer, uh, worked with uh, some ATF agents on a couple of cases. My eyes got wide open and I thought, wow, this is this this is kind of neat, right? Left the PD, came to ATF 33 years ago, you know, yeah. and, and, and here I am today still. Um, so when you talk about that partnership, it starts with those relationships. And it's out on the streets where ATF agents and police officers are doing jobs every day. While, while, while police officers are those first responders, right? They get there first, no question. The very next thing that happens is ATF shows up. And, and I like to call ATF sometimes. ATF stands for after the fact, but that's after the fact when you realize, hey, we need you and you call us and we show up. And it doesn't matter what time it is, you know, time of day, it doesn't matter, time of night. You call an ATF agent to come there to, to assist state and local partner, we're going to be there. You know, that's uh, that journey, 33 years, uh, it took you from, uh, from, you know, patrol officer to, to joining ATF to, uh, 30, what, 33 years later, uh, 32 years later, serving some time as the acting director. That's a, that's a, 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 an absolutely amazing path, uh, of accomplishments. Talk a little bit about your leadership style, your philosophy when it comes to the agency. So, when you, my leadership style is really a servant leadership style, right? I think we all, you know, we hear the term servant leader. What does that really mean? Well, I'm that guy that inverts the pyramid, right? If you're standing on the top of the pyramid looking down, guess what? Everybody's looking up your nose. <laughs> it's not a very pretty sight, okay? But when you invert that pyramid as a leader, right, and you put the point at the bottom, 
it's a lot easier to hold it up, right? And so what I believe leadership does is leadership holds up the organization, right? We always talk about the foundation. If leadership isn't a part of the foundation because it's standing on the top, then eventually the organization is going to fall, right? Because leadership has to have a positive impact on followership. And the only way to do that is to demonstrate that you are willing to do what it takes to support the people who follow you, right? And if you don't do that, and if you don't demonstrate that and do it, not just for show, but for real, uh, then you're going to lose your people. And so I believe in getting in there. I've done the job. So I tell people, you know, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I haven't done. I'm not going to try to tell you how to do something that I haven't thought about. Right. And then ask you about how to do it best. So I like to think of myself as that person who's there to serve the people that I lead, to engage with them, to find out what it is, but then also to provide that strategic vision, that 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 insight that allows me to be able to say, I believe that we will be successful because of. And you do that really based on, I think, all of your collective experiences. I believe that we are the sum total of our experiences. And if you've been there, done that, then share that. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. It's a, it's a great analogy. I, I appreciate that. Uh, 33 years, in 33 years, you've, uh, uh, you've seen a lot happen. I know in my career, I, I think of when I first started, yeah, I think, I think of how much law enforcement has changed and, uh, yes. and, and, you know, you were in a position not only to, to watch it change, but to also influence that change. What is your proudest achievement in, in those 33 years at ATF? <sighs> wow. You know, I, I almost have to, I'm going to bring it, probably to, to a very current uh, issue that I think is going to have a great impact on where we go from here. Uh, a lot of things, I think, over those 33 years, but if I'm looking at something currently uh, that is happening, um, you know, we, we enforce laws in this country for ATF that are 88 and 54 years old, res respectively, right? The, the National Firearms Act and the Gun Control Act. Those two laws have not been overhauled. They haven't been changed significantly over the course of that time, 88 and 54 years. But when you think about firearms, when you think about technology, when you think about processes and things of that nature, um, those things have changed. And so we have been limited by the language in the statutes. Well, here just recently over the last year, we overhauled those two statutes, no small feat at all, to make sure that we could set the stage moving forward for law enforcement to have the tools that we need to be able to enforce these laws in a 21st century environment. Um, that, that was no small feat because literally when you talk about changing it, we had to do it through a regulatory process, not a statutory process because we couldn't change the language of the statute, but we could redefine the terminology that's in the statute to make it fit today's standards. So what does that do for us and for the officer on the street, right? The challenges that we face today versus the challenges that we faced, uh, uh, those many years respectively ago have to totally changed, right? Mm -hmm. So some of that familiar vernacular that that, that that the officer on the street would be familiar with, ghost guns, right? Who knew what a ghost gun was in 1968 or in 1934? Who knew what a machine gun conversion device was? Well, today we know that all too well because those things are showing up and they're impacting our officers 
in a negative way on the streets when they encounter them. And they impact us negatively when we go to try and investigate them. So overhauling those two statutes and giving law enforcement back the kind of tools that we need to be able to really attack these problems head on instead of losing in court, which is what we were doing with that language, right? If you couldn't identify the firearm by the language in the statute, you know, as being, you know, uh, this object here that that expels a projectile by means of explosion. Well, guess what? Today you can buy a gun in a box, right? They call it a buy, build, shoot kit. Can you drop a bullet in a box of parts and see it be expelled by explosion? No, because it's not there. But in about 20 minutes, you could make one to do that, yeah. right? Yeah. That gap in the law was literally costing lives because convicted felons could buy a box of parts where they couldn't buy a completed firearm. Yeah. So we've closed that gap. I'm really excited about that. I know it sounds kind of like, you know, normally I'd say we got out there and we reduced violent crime by, you know, but this gives us the tools that we need to be able to do it more effectively in a modern law enforcement environment. Right. So I think that that is one of the biggest accomplishments that we collectively, because it's not something that I've done, but collectively, and it wasn't just the men and women who carry guns. It was those lawyers. It was those, uh, those firearms experts, you know, the, right. our, our, our folks that are technical experts who were able to look at this, dissect it, and then come up with a strategy to implement these changes through the regulatory process. And, and so, look at what it did to communities all across this country. Definitely. I mean, if the motivation is, is that people, it was costing people their lives. Exactly. And quality of life also. Uh, you know, there's some 18,000 local law enforcement, uh, local and state law enforcement uh, organizations across this country. And they all, uh, they're all, you know, at the lowest levels, working in their communities, working with yes. the people firsthand. And, and, and the reality is, is most crime, uh, uh, the, the prevention of crime, the reaction to crime, uh, the intel, all of that stuff is more likely to come from those local law enforcement agencies because that's where the boots are on the ground. And uh, the sort of partnerships with, uh, with federal agencies are so vitally important with local jurisdictions. And there are a number of task force uh, that uh, ATF is a big part of and uh, supporting local law enforcement and their efforts. Can you, can you discuss a little bit uh, just uh, perspectives on local, um, on those task force at the, at the local and state level and, and, and the value of them? Well, first, let me thank the men and women who put on that uniform every day put on that badge, put on that gun and walk out and go out onto the streets to do a job that is sometimes thankless. And so more, I want to more thank, lately. Yes. So I want to thank all of them first for doing that, because what I know is that when people in communities dial 911, the people who show up are showing up there because they care. And so I can appreciate that. And I want to make sure that I let everyone out there know how much we at ATF are your partners and we do appreciate what you do because you are those first responders. You're the ones who get there when the crap is hitting the fan and nobody else knows what to do. And you got to figure it out in about five seconds and implement a, a plan of action. So first, thank you for that. The second part of that in dealing with those partnerships uh, at ATF, we only have about 2,700 agents nationwide. Now, there's a little bit of a fallacy out there that people believe, you know, there's an ATF agent waiting on every corner to come into your house, open up your closet, find out what kind of guns you got and take them from you. Well, that's not happening. Okay. So I'm here to tell you that first. So with 2,700 agents nationwide, you can think about most big city police departments are bigger than we are as a federal law enforcement agency with regards to our to our agent population, right? We've got 5,000 plus employees nationwide, but only 2,700 of them are law enforcement agents. And so 
we need our state and local partners to be force multipliers, right, to help us to do our mission, to carry it out. That's why when we bring on task force officers, of which I think we've got somewhere close to a little bit over 3,000 or so nationwide right now, when we talk about that, there's almost double the size of who we are without them, right? So without those people, you know, we're 2,700 strong. When we add them, all of a sudden, you can see how the numbers go up in communities across this country. But we need more. Uh, that's a that's a shameless plug. <laughs> well, you know, it's, actually, it's it's more than that, because uh, each one of those uh, are part of an agency, and that agency, exactly. in, a, in a larger perspective, is con- connected to that task force. Yes. So, uh, you're right. I, I, it's uh, there, there, it's impossible. It, it's literally impossible to to not recognize that uh, that the initial contact, the initial information, yes. you know, most likely to respond to to these things at the, at the first at the onset is going to be local law enforcement yeah. uh, ways to plug them in and be part of a bigger picture with the uh, resources necessary in order to be able to connect those dots yeah. are, are vitally important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you one of the things, and if, if I'm to, to talk about, you know, I, I talk to law enforcement leadership all the time about ways that we can work better together to really resolve some of the firearms related violent crime issues that are occurring in all of our communities across the country, right? There's no question you ask any uh, police chief, any law enforcement person across the country, what's the biggest problem facing your community? It's firearms related violent crime, right? So when we start talking about solving those crimes today, we have so many new tools and techniques and technology that allow us to do things that we've never been able to do before. And it's that officer that responds to the scene first, who has the greatest opportunity to really initiate that process. And what I'm talking about there is, especially at any shooting scene today, what's one of the first things, uh, pieces of evidence that the criminal leaves behind? There's a shell casing. If they fired a gun and it wasn't a revolver, and nine times out of 10 today, it's not, um, there's a shell casing. So our NIBIN technology, the National Integrated Ballistics Information Network, if they pick up that shell casing, and they should, right? Because now that shell casing becomes the same thing as a fingerprint, right? I want to think about it like this, right? There's not a police department in this country that would ever allow an officer to arrest a person and take them into custody without fingerprinting. When we have firearms that are used at crime scenes and we have shell casings and that firearm is collected as evidence, those two things should immediately be not only put into evidence, but put into NIBIN and then traced as a firearm, right? Because that is, quote unquote, the fingerprint of the firearm. And if we can do that, the data and the technology that we have today will start connecting dots and we'll be able to not just be reactive to these shootings, but we'll be able to be proactive because there's so much value in the data that comes from that collected uh, evidence that when we start doing that, like you said, you know, I mean, 17,986, I believe is correct on the number of, 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 of law enforcement agencies in this country. And right now, only about 50% of them actually trace firearms, right? And that starts with that agent, with that officer on the street who collects that information and, and, and takes that gun into custody and picks up those shell casings. Everything's initiated right there. So we have the opportunity. Now we've got to take advantage of it. You know, it's, I've, I've heard you speak many, many times, and, and I was getting ready to take it in Ivan's. <laughs> uh, a lot of people say that they think they're pretty sure that's your middle name <laughs> because you're <laughs> because you're so passionate about it. Uh, you know, you, we talk about that technology, the importance of, of how technology has changed and how we need to stay ahead of it. And part of that technology is also uh, – 
obtaining data or keeping data on this yes. that that uh, really allows us to track that fingerprint. Uh, I'm 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 quite certain that uh, every agency out there, when they they have that shooting, they are securing mm -hmm. uh, those shell casings. The the next step though, yes, is to is to integrate it into what uh, you know take advantage of the resources that ATF have. So with that, uh, can you explain what Nibens? is which i've heard you do yeah. so much i'm just going to get out of your way and let you <laughs> let you do your thing and, and, and but but talk about nibins what it is how it works how it needs a uh, local involvement for it to be successful and just just walk us through the whole process sure. no for sure thank you for that um so 1997 atf initiated uh the national integrated ballistics information network or nibin right and nibin is a system in which we can take shell casings and we take those shell casings and we image them under a high, under an electron microscope so that you can see all of the tool marks, right? And those tool marks from a firearm become essentially the fingerprint of that firearm. Because just like we have no two people that have the same fingerprints, when you manufacture a firearm, that those, those, machine markings that go on to a cartridge casing when it's ejected, when the hammer hits, uh, those marks are specific to a firearm. So Nibin allows us to look at those shell casings and to compare them and to connect scenes, right? Things that we would never be able to do, uh, it, it, you know, if we're just trying to do it through even relationships, right? Because jurisdiction to jurisdiction, we just don't have the time. We don't have that luxury, but the data can talk to us, right? So if everyone is entering their shell casings into Nibin, then what we're able to do is allow that data to connect scenes, to connect shootings across jurisdictions seamlessly, right? Um, but it's kind of like anything else, right? Nothing in, nothing out. Garbage in, garbage out. Good stuff in, good stuff out. Well, right now, only about 33% of the police departments in this country have ever used Nibin even once, right? Just to put a shell casing in. And I want you to think about this, right? So uh, here recently we had uh, a, a spree of crimes between Washington, D.C. and New York in which a guy was going around shooting homeless people and killing them, right? Um, so thought he was doing, you know, cover, covering his tracks, this and any other. One of the scenes, he actually not only shoots a victim, but burns uh, burns them uh, in, in their little, 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 little tent that they were living in. So police officers, investigators get to the scene. They find a single shell casing. They take that shell casing. They put it into Nibin. Now, who knew that in New York City, miles and miles away from Washington, D.C., there had been several shootings of homeless people there. New York City picked up those, uh, those shell casings, put them into Nibin. When that D.C. detective put that casing into Nibin here, instant hit. All of a sudden, the eyes got big. The meter went off, and it was like, these are connected. We don't find that out by DC detectives talking to New York detectives. They don't have time. They're too busy working the scenes in their locations, right? But that technology, that data allowed us to cross a bridge that got those detectives to talking to one another to find out we've got the same shooter. And then you start using all the other intelligence that we've got available to us through, you know, CCTV. You got LPRs that show the trend that show the person moving up and down the highway. You know, we can all of a sudden now identify that person. And within three days time, this guy is off the streets, arrested and in jail. That doesn't happen if we're not employing Nibin. Now, what we also were able to do is we trace those firearms right to so the firearm that was being used. So we knew automatically who 
the last legal purchaser was of that firearm. And under those circumstances, we were able to identify, hey, whether or not that gun was stolen, if it was the same person that bought it. So all of a sudden, we got so much information to initiate our investigation on that it's just about putting the dots together now. We just connect them with lines, right? Uh, we couldn't do that in the past. Those would have been unsolved mysteries for us, right? Uh, but Nibin and tracing and the data and intelligence that drive modern investigative efforts are really going to allow us to, to really solve cases that we never could. So when we close that data gap, remember, we said 70,896 or so police departments, right? If we got Let's say right now only 50% are using tracing, 33% are using Nibin. You get that up to 80% tracing because tracing is free and we're about to make it even easier uh, with some APIs that we've developed that will be able to connect to police department RMS systems and automatically trace the firearms instead of having somebody fat fingered in there. So there's, there's still some good stuff on the horizon there to make it easier, but we've got to do it more, right? We have to have 100% comprehensive firearms tracing and NIBIN entries in order to really impact this firearms related violence issue that, that is just, you know, just terrorizing our country. So when we can get there, then we're going to see real results. We're going to see deterrence come into play, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine one day that, that, that one of your officers on the streets arrests a guy and says, well, I used a revolver because, uh, you know, I knew that if I left a shell case and the police were going to find that and they were going to connect it to me. See, six shots, I'll take that over 30, right? I'm not saying that's great, but you know what? Six versus 30, 30 is pretty darn indiscriminate, right? Six, and if you're, if you're dumb enough to dump it and reload it, then we should catch you, right? <laughs> With the six that are left on the ground. Right. Uh, you know, you... Uh, you, you Talk about the uh, about that the, the one here in DC stretching all the way up to to New York. Do you have any others that that stand in your mind, Hawaii, of how this technology has <clears throat> really gave an edge to to investigation? Oh, definitely. I mean, you can look at well, look, well, and we'll stick on the East Coast for just a minute, but you can go to um, you can go uh, back to back back to New York and the subway shooting there, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so we were able to again through tracing identify a secondary market. Uh, purchase of that firearm. So what do I mean by that? Well, when a police, when we trace a firearm, we find out who the, the manufacturer, wholesaler, retailer, and the first legal purchaser is, right? Well, we have a secondary market program that allows us to figure out if someone pawned that gun or sold it to another uh, FFL, right? Then we can now go back into the trace process and find out who that other person may have been. So that's exactly how we connected the dots to the individual uh, and were able to say, hey, you know what? Uh, that guy that y'all arrested, he bought this gun. I mean, when you yeah. can do that, all of a sudden, now you're in a position where you can really know what you don't know, right? So so tracing did it for us there. Uh, Nibin all over the place. So when I talk about being proactive, remember the one thing we know about shooters, first thing is there's not a whole lot of them out there. We can identify that population. The second thing yeah. is we know that people work their way up. They try to build their confidence to do certain things, right? So that same officer that responds to a scene where somebody shot at a stop sign, right? And they left shell casing. That officer picks those shell casings up. They put them in a knife. The next few days, there's a drive-by shooting, right? Somebody rides by and indiscriminately shoots at a home, right? But the officer who responded to that scene picks up those shell casings and they get put into knife too. All of a sudden you go, wow, our stop sign shooting and our drive-by are connected. And now, Three days later, 
another officer in a totally different jurisdiction arrests a guy who's driving down the street, runs a red light, and in that car, he's got a gun. Well, that officer takes that gun, goes and puts it into, into evidence. Evidence fires a test, a, a test cartridge, puts it in a knife, and, and they go, hey, this was connected to the stop sign shooting and to the drive-by. And guess what we just did right there? You know what the next thing that guy was going to do with that gun? He was going to shoot a person because he's building up his confidence through those indiscriminate shootings to get that confidence to pull the trigger on a person. But we just interrupted the shooting cycle. We just identified the shooter before he could kill someone through using the technology that's available to us and by doing the job of collecting the evidence and using the technology to help us to solve those crimes and prevent, in this case, perhaps some family from having to deal with a tragedy that they could never recover from. Well, that's, that's some great examples of how, how, effective, you know, how effective investigations and technology can work together and, uh, and how it, ATF is playing a big, a big part of that. You know, we talked about the technology. How technology has changed in your 33 years, and and here we are at a point now where we're able to connect dots. Technology is, you know, get it. It's a human element involved. It requires uh, interaction with with uh, law enforcement to participate in this this program. But I'm curious, uh, you know, the what's next in technology? What's out there? Where do you see us going in this uh, beyond Nivens? So, so I think that right now we're going to improve on that technology, right? Well, first thing we got to do is we got to get everybody to right. using it, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. so if we can, once we get that data gap closed and we really get police departments to implementing policies that say you will versus, oh yeah, you can, right? Because you can put this right. stuff into the systems, but when it's a, you will like fingerprinting, right? Everybody knows what APHIS is, right? We, we now digitally collect those fingerprints and they automatically going into APHIS. Well, we're trying to do the same thing now with tracing. And then with Nibin, we're going to have to get to a point where that technology makes it even easier for us to not only get those entries submitted to the system, but then also correlated and identified and connected to the different scenes. And that's what we're actually working on right now. One of the first, uh, uh, issues there is we've got to have capacity, right? So right now we're working on a lift and shift, trying to make sure that we can get that technology taken away from old standalone server environments up into a new cloud environment that will allow us to get rid of brick and mortar locations. where We've got all of these people sitting in rooms doing correlations. When we can do that more remotely because we can access this information through a secure cloud environment, that's going to give access to not just right now 30% of those police departments who are doing it, but to all the police departments who will be doing it and who want to have access to that information and the tools, I think at that point, you know, once they become like second nature, like you don't even think about fingerprints, right? You just know. And, and, and mo more recently who rolls a fingerprint anymore? Not yeah. many people, right? Yeah. It's digital now. Well, same thing with Nibin. I believe that once we get to a point, there's other technology out there, laser technology that will allow us to not necessarily have to use a microscope to look at those uh, shell casings, but you can actually use a laser that will allow you to take an image of that thing more instantaneously, more accurately. There's so much out there that's on the horizon and there are people out there, uh, partners, you know, who are looking to work with law enforcement 
to go into some of those new areas. I mean, there, there, there are things that we haven't even thought about yet, which I, I, I use the example, right? Uh, big data is, is a term that has always been used in business to drive bottom lines, right? If you got data, you can do analysis, you can find out how to do things bigger, better, faster, right? And that all gets to the bottom line, which is more money, right? Well, in law enforcement, our bottom line is we want to get more bad guys off the streets and keep them from hurting our communities. So how do we do that? Big data met law enforcement and it created crime gun intelligence analytics. And ATF is on the forefront of establishing what that is as a discipline. In fact, we just entered a partnership with Wichita State University and we are setting up a crime gun center for excellence. Right. And that program is partnering with a local uh, with local local police and with a university that has a criminal justice program and a police academy located on its campus. So now all of a sudden, we're not just going to be talking about what we do in a law enforcement and active law enforcement environment, but now how can we take that, translate it over into academia, let them look at and, and analyze some of the, the, the things that we do, the methods, the ways that we do things, and help to show us ways that we can now forecast and project into the future how we're going to be able to respond to some of these challenges. You can't do that when you're always out there responding, right? But when you can take some of that and set it now in an academic setting where people can actually study it, and not only do those people study it, but guess what? That becomes our new resource pool for those crime gun analysts that are going to be working in our labs, that are going to be working as intelligence research specialists in our police departments and organizations. So all of a sudden, we create a whole new industry, a whole new academic area of excellence where when people graduate from school, they come ready to yeah. us uh, to walk into an environment where they can help us immediately yeah. uh, to be able to keep our community safe. Yeah, you, 33%, uh, you estimate, are the ones that are participating in an IBIN system, right? Uh, which means there's 66% that we need to reach yes, out to. Uh, our listeners are, you know, across this country, law enforcement officers uh, probably listening on a night shift while they're, yes. you know, just uh, finishing up their shifts. Uh, what can what can they do in order to be able to to carry this uh, this information to to signal the, uh, the the need for for their agencies to to be more inclusive in an IBAN system? What 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 advice would you give to them? What what how could they help uh, drive this? Well, as leaders in their own ranks, which they are, they are leaders in their departments. Even if you're a leader of one, right? You're a leader, right? So if that person let's say in your department, you're not using or you know that, hey, look, uh, we don't have a policy that says we're supposed to do this. So are, are we doing it? Asking that question first of leadership, right? Hey, and then not just asking the question, but letting them know, you know what part of the answer is. And like I said, tracing is free. You can go on www.atf.gov and you look up eTrace and all you got to do is go on there and sign up for an account. That's free. And, and then all of a sudden you're tracing. So no problem there. NIBIN, we've got 248 sites set up now nationwide that, that are networked, okay? And they're not just at 248 police departments. They are networked to other police departments within those regions. We're looking to expand that network. And, of course, that's being done through BJA and, and places like COPS uh, where grants are available to police departments to be able to purchase uh, machines uh, in order to establish the technology or just through the partnerships that exist out there right now with the current network. 
you can ask your chief, hey, chief, are we a part of a NIBA network? And if we're not, you know, hey, we pick up these cases all the time. And what if here's the thing, right, for that officer who has that question, because he or she, no question, is there to serve their community. And they know that this is a great way to really be able to impact violent crime. So they say, well, hey, look, you know, we know that this is available and we pick this stuff up. We don't want to be the ones who have the answer to somebody's homicide sitting in our evidence doing nothing. We would much rather have that information in a system that is talking to other police departments behind the scenes through data transfers, telling us what's going on because God forbid that there's a parent sitting somewhere in a, in a big city and, and, and you're in a small suburban area because what we know is, you know, guys commit crimes in, in certain places then they retreat back to others where they feel like they're in safe havens and if you're that safe haven, but you arrested that guy and you got that gun in custody, but you have no clue that he just committed a homicide three days ago and you haven't traced the gun and it hasn't been put in a nibin and there's a family somewhere grieving. I mean, hey, none of us wants to be that guy. Right. So if I'm that police officer that's listening to this right now, you know what I'm asking myself is, do we have those kinds of policies? Do we have that practice in place? And if we don't, what do we need to do in order to get it implemented so that we can be a part of? the solution, right? Because the solution is not just a local solution. It's a national solution. Yeah, and it's also not a, it's, it's a matter of consistency too. Yes, so at half the time only gives you half the results. Yes, sir. Uh, so if, if an agency uh, wanted to, if someone within an agency wanted to, to really dive into this, know a little bit more about it uh, so that they could, uh, an officer, so that they could approach their agency and, and really become a, 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 a an ambassador for this, uh, for the system to, to try and develop those policies. Are they model policies? Is there a, a place where you could send them to with it, give them the information they need, empower them with the tools they need in order to be able to, to affect, uh, some inclusion within their, within their agencies. So several ways that we can do that, right? So obviously we have an online presence. If you go to, to the ATF website, you'll find, uh, and just, just type in NIBIN, you'll find everything you need to know about NIBIN, about the program, uh, about how to get, uh, uh involved in the program. Same thing with tracing. Uh, if you want to have a more uh, personal approach, reach out for your local ATF agents, right? You got, we've got offices in, two, in 468 locations around the country. There are 25 major field divisions, but about 468 offices uh, located throughout the nation. Uh, reach out to that local ATF agent. Ask them, how do we do this? What do we need to do? And you'll get a more personal interaction with how to get it done that way. Uh, but then one of the other things that we've done just recently is we uh, we invited uh, a group of 50 um, major chiefs from around the country to come in ATF headquarters to talk about, you know, what are some of the best practices? What are some of the ways that we can make sure to get this word out there so that others uh, are using these systems? Right. We, we invited those people in because they're doing it, but they're also influential. Right. Um, and we asked them to help influence by going back to their areas and meeting with those chiefs that are in their areas that may not be doing. When I was a uh, SAC in Denver, Colorado, um, I would always attend uh, the chiefs of police police association meeting, right? I was a member of the organization. Uh, I would attend those meetings and, and kind of like I said, Nibin was my gospel. I preached it okay. everywhere I went because I knew that that was the, that was the key, right? It's not that, and play on words. It's not the silver bullet, but it is part and parcel to the answer to being able to resolve some of the violent crime in our area by identifying those shooters and those traffickers, those people who are putting the guns into the hands of the people that are pulling triggers. They're just as responsible. So if you want to go through either the 
online, you know, look and find out, find an ATF agent in your area and talk to them. There are multiple ways that you can get that information. And as a result of that, um, that form that we had in headquarters, we're putting together a brochure uh, of best practices, model policy language, things of that right. nature. It will literally be a crime gun, uh, a crime gun, uh, best practices book of excellence, so to speak, right. To put out there and it's going to be made available. We're in the process of finishing it, but I'm going to, Hey, I'm going to give it to you here at FOP and say, put it out there we'll to do your that. people, right. We certainly uh, will. Uh, anywhere that we can go to get the word out there and for people to, to, to have that information, we're going to go through those, uh, those avenues to try and get it out there. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, and appreciate your passion. I, I've heard you speak on this topic several times and, uh, uh, it's, we, we need more people like you out there uh, signaling uh, the, the tools that we need or are, are, are highlighting the tools we need to be more effective and efficient in what we're doing in, in law enforcement. So I want to thank you for uh, for, for your passion uh, and, and your leadership and in, in, in what is a very important tool uh, to Appreciate law enforcement. Uh, uh, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, I'll give you a chance. To, any final thoughts you want, I'd like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, um, again, I think that we're all part of a solution here, right? I think that we have so much opportunity to really impact a problem that we know is the scourge of our nation right now. You know, our citizens in our communities should be able to sit out on their front porches in the evening time, right? Kids should be able to play in the streets once again. I can remember, and I can say that, look, I've been around here long enough that I remember when neighborhoods, you could actually drive through them. And you could you, you you could hear the, the you could see the kids playing in the streets and the elderly folks sitting on the on the porch in a rocking chair. That doesn't happen very much anymore, and it's because of the fear that has been 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 driven into those communities by people who are out there taking away from those good, hardworking citizens what they've earned over the course of their lives. So we have an opportunity to try to give some of that peace back to them by. By, by taking these people, these shooters, these traffickers, these trigger pullers off the streets, because we can identify them now. We have the tools, we have the technology, we have the techniques, we have the ability to do more. And now what we've got to do is you said the key words, be consistent right. in our operation, right? Make sure that what we're doing is 100%, right? Because if we've got a gap, that gap is literally killing people. We talk about the gap between 30% and that other 60-something percent that's not doing it. 50% and the other 50% that we, we, law enforcement, have the ability to close that gap by our own practices and policies. And if we do that, we're going to show those communities just how much we care by giving them back something that is rightfully theirs, and that is peace in their minds and in their in their homes. And, and that gap... The, even if it's just a 1% gap, that yes. 1% could be that huge case that could have made such a difference in the lives of so exactly. many people. So, and no department is too small uh, to absolutely. be a part of the solution. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for, for your passion. Thank you for sharing this information with us. Uh, and, uh, and I'm hoping that, that, our, that our members, our listeners, recognize that, uh, that there's some resources here and need to be asking questions in our own agencies. So uh, thank you for all you do. And to our listeners, I uh, uh, thank you for tuning in as well where, where on the Blue View, where we, we talk about the things that are vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up every single day in communities across this country. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. See you next time.